The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. So you've watched the Hawkeye preview. Oh my God! I uh, it did brought you, a tear to my little eye. The first comic book I ever loved was Matt Fraction's Hawkeye. I think it's so fantastic. The Hawkeye in the movies has never been a character at all. I feel like they biffed him a, a, a lot. He got the short. I mean, he's married to Velma, so he has that at least. That's the least we could give him. But uh, I love those comics so much. And maybe, you know, I'm frankly... Scott, 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 <laughs> I'm not one to shy away from a good Christmas movie. And now I say, Elf. I mean, good. Elf, for example. Elf. That's a masterpiece. Die hard. Die hard. <laughs> Conference call will fail right now. And so I'm not sure if the excitement was, I mean, that one shot of him and uh, Kate Bishop in the car, that was mm-hmm. like a frame mm-hmm. out of the freaking comic. Mm-hmm. Amazing. With and, arrows back. And Lucky and, the dog. Yes. And, and apparently he's wearing hearing aids. Yep. I saw, I did see like a freeze frame and I was like, hi, hello. And, and, uh, and the casting of Kate. Haley Steinfeld? Yes. I love her. She's so good. I'm, what else has I, she been in that you've seen? Uh, well, you haven't seen her Emily Dickinson show on Apple. Oh, I've. you know what I've seen her in? Pitch Perfect. Pitch Perfect 2 and 3. Yeah. And then she and, went on Zach Galifianakis' show, and he said, do you ever wish that you were in the good one? <laughs> and... She is so good that I can't remember how long it took me to realize that the woman playing Emily Dickinson and the woman from the Pitch Perfect movies were the same person. That's crazy. I only know because her because she's also been so like different. she's had some radio hits. And she's so different. And yeah, and I didn't know that she was also a singer uh, because I'm old. But and I hadn't heard that that's. Or maybe I had heard that she was getting the Kate Bishop role. I can't remember. But when I saw her in there, and it's like scenes right out of the comics. <laughs> yeah, it looked I good. I am so ready for Hawkeye. And and yeah, we can only hope that now that he's really going to get some of the stuff that... that I, I, because I completely agree that he got the short stick in the films and it, and it was kind of a thin character. He was always enjoyable uh, because uh, Matt Renner is great and just. Jeremy. You know. uh, what? Jeremy Renner. Jeremy. What did I say? I said Matt. Matt. <laughs> um, where did I get Matt from? I, know, anyway, I just thought you'd want me to correct you right oh, away. Definitely. Definitely. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm uh, really obviously we're both totally geeking out and and uh, looking forward to that. I uh, also think it's so interesting seeing what Disney is doing just as like a new streaming service. Mm-hmm. Like the way that they're like, screw it, Christmas Marvel, Christmas Hawkeye show. I'm like, <laughs> you know. But I also was very, even as a low key stan. Okay, 
I was very concerned that the Loki show was going to be bad. When they announced it, I was like, I'm going to watch it, but it's going to be bad. Um, and I really enjoyed that show. And I really enjoyed WandaVision. I didn't think I would enjoy WandaVision. Um, and so I'm really excited to see what they do here because I think there's really some some meat on the bones here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some vegan meat on, on the bones. Some vegan ribs. <laughs> uh, well, on that very optimistic and excited geeky note, welcome to Generations Geek, a more or less family-friendly celebration of all that is geeky. I'm science fiction writer and editor Scott Pearson, and along with my daughter, Ella. Hello. We are two generations of geek. This is episode 63, Homes Beyond Doyle. We'll be discussing Sherlock Holmes in film, TV, and literature with our special guest, author Christopher D. Abbott, who just happens to be writing his own series of Sherlock Holmes novellas. This is a follow-up to our second episode, originally posted way back in October 2012. If you haven't listened to that one, you may want to pause and do so before continuing with this one. Go ahead. We'll wait. Okay, now, on with the show. Christopher D. Abbott, welcome to Generations Geek. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we dive into all the Sherlock Holmes books and movies, uh, I want to get a little background. When did you first read Doyle's original stories? Oh, that's a very good question. Um, when I was probably about 15, uh, I, I wasn't very literate when I was a child. I suffered with dyslexia and I had a real problem reading and um, writing. But um, my dad actually gave me a, a, the complete Sherlock Holmes collection of books and uh, I started reading them from there. And of course, there were a lot of big words in there that I didn't understand. So he very carefully and quietly one day left me a dictionary and a thesaurus. And from there, I was able to look up some of these words because I had no idea what they meant. Um, but that was my my first. Yeah, I was about 15 um, and I was hooked. I was totally hooked uh, on the idea that someone was clever enough to outwit all these really other clever people. Mm -hmm. um, in such a way that made you feel like you were part of the story. Um, and I think from there, uh, I had a fascination after that with mysteries, but also it really inspired me to write, even though I was very poor at it. I, I, I had struggled with it, but I really persevered with it. And then a little later, when I got into college, I had an English teacher who recognized my dyslexia because no one else had recognized it. They just, you know, said that he was... Christopher has the ability to do well, but he lacks the confidence he needs to do mm. so. I think it was written on nearly every <laughs> report I ever had. And she just asked me when I first started, you know, her, how long have you been dyslexic? And I just said, I don't even know what that means. And, and from there, she, she really helped me to recognize, because I put my own barriers in my brain. I'd, I'd made my own mm -hmm. sort of fixes to this problem, and she had to help me unfix them. Um, but no, uh, I think that it was really that. And um, I tried to read Lord of the Rings and I couldn't. And then my dad again said to me, you need to read The Hobbit first. And I read that. And then after that, I was able to read him. And so really, that's what got me into the whole idea of fantasy and mystery fiction. I mean, obviously, you must have loved Sherlock 
so much right away to slog through that. Can you sort of talk about like, was it frustrating to like try to work your way through that? Or was it like so you just loved it so much? It was so enjoyable that it it didn't matter that it was kind of tough to get through. I think initially when I first started reading it, I found it quite frustrating because I kept stumbling over words that I didn't know or understand. And and these books obviously were written almost 100 years before me. So um, I knew that the language was very different to what we spoke now. And uh, so initially, I think I, I did have a, a level of frustration at it, um, but I did persevere. And then after a while, I found myself um, actually my own lexicon, if you like, my own vocabulary ha- ha- started to improve because I was able to read from another person's pers- perspective because mm-hmm. I'm reading the stories from Watson's perspective and he's writing them as they happen or, or you know, in his own sort of words. And, and I found like I really responded much better to first person stories um, because I could suddenly put myself in the situation and almost if it's if, if the author is clever enough to be able to allow me to visualize what's what's happening through their words that helped me I've always been um, uh, audio visual person so for example I will read stuff and within a very short period of time will not remember hardly any of it um, it's the reason why I can reread my mystery stories and go, oh, that's very, I was very really surprised <laughs> by that. <laughs> but if I watch a TV program uh, or, or a film or something, I can quote almost all of it um, right afterwards and, and retain it. So hmm. I always had that ability. And I think that while I'd read the home stories a number of times, I didn't really retain the information. And then it, it was probably in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, when I found the Granada TV series Sherlock Holmes with Jeremy Brett, David Work and Edward Hardwick. And I realized that I'd read some of these stories and some of the information I retained, but it was just that interpretation that cemented the Holmes, uh, the love of Sherlock Holmes to me. And then I then went back and started to watch other people doing it and finding myself comparing them to Jeremy Brett's portrayal because I had really never, ever seen <laughs> anyone else do it. So, yeah, it was it was a combination of, yeah, the frustration of not being able to recognize these words and, and, and the, the, the way in which they were presented, but later seeing someone else speak them and understand them a little bit better. So it was a, it was a combination of the two, I think. Given the challenges that you had reading the material, did you have a favorite story f- from the original stories, or did it d- did it have to uh, wait until you saw Jeremy Brett to help you find a, f- a favorite story? No, actually, I did have a favorite story, and actually, when I watched the Jeremy Brett version, um, it it was as good as my interpretation. For example. I have another story I like, and I've seen a very few, I've seen many interpretations of that story, and very few of them have got to the to the, to the the crux of the story, or they've really left out certain parts, and that's mm-hmm. The Hand of the Baskervilles. I think it's the most 
widely remade version of the story and yet there are so many variations with so many different I mean there were people in there that, that were never in the book you know so I couldn't quite understand that but in answer to your question my favorite story of the whole canon is the speckled band um, and uh, when I saw how faithful um, the reproduction that Granada TV did and certainly Jeremy Brett and David Burke did of that story um, it was exactly as I pictured it. And of course, they were lucky because they had Sidney Paget's original drawings of how Holmes reacted in certain circumstances so that Jeremy Brett could almost reproduce them and, and diligently did. And uh, uh, yes, disillusion to a band, a speckled band. I loved the I loved I loved everything about it. I, I loved the, 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 the one liners that Holmes came out with that sort of became almost synonymous with who he was. For example, like Holmes never said elementary, my dear Watson, and yet it has become a real big part of who he is. Yeah. Um, in the same way that, um, you know, it was William Gillette who portrayed Holmes in the sort of real early time, you know, on on stage and made the deer stalker and the big sort of Austrian pipe um, a part of who. Of, of what we consider to be Holmes. In fact, every symbol of Holmes is him wearing a deer stalker and a pipe. Yep. And yet the original stories did not depict him wearing that at all because he only wore the deer stalker type hat in the countryside, you know, and there are little things like that that Jeremy Brett took into his version of it and said, you know, he wore a top hat in London um, because he was a gentleman and that's what they wore. And, uh, you know, and that's how Sidney Paget drew him. So, yeah. One of our big questions we were going to ask you was, who is your first on-screen Holmes? Oh, right. And we already got to that, the, the, yeah. the fabulous Jeremy Brett. Yes. Um, I think that he would have been the first one that I saw too, right? Because I remember watching yep. it. Um, my, my grandpa showed it to me when I was, like, very young, I feel like. Might yep. have been before I read anything. Uh, I would guess, yeah, that you were probably watching his VHS tapes of Jeremy Brett when you were quite young. He was so good. Well, this can fold right into our next uh, our next segment here because um, we wanted to go back through sort of recapping what we had done on our first Holmes episode and and uh, and get your thoughts on the people that we watched for the first episode. So uh, one of the things that we watched for our first episode was a uh, TV series starring Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes. And uh, <laughs> we both kind of agreed that Peter Cushing was, was good casting, but the end result, the sort of low-budget, hurried production, did not really come together. I agree. I totally agree. Um, I watched, in preparation for this show, I did go back and watch a few um, and actually did a bit of research on the number of really famous actors who have played Sherlock Holmes, and I was quite surprised at the list. I mean, there were some real top names in that list that I didn't even know, but I did watch a few Peter Cushing ones, and I must admit, I loved Peter Cushing. He was a fabulous actor, and he had a gravitas that was almost like the sort of gravitas that Jeremy Brett managed to get through his performance in the yeah. same way that I think uh, Basil Rathbone had as well. You know, he was believable. And unfortunately, the stories let him down, the writing let him down, because there were a few of those stories where I was shaking my head going, well, this is, what is this? This is not 
I don't know what this is. And also, I have to say, and it doesn't really matter for who, which performer I have seen playing the Holmes role, they never got the Watson role right. They always had him as a bumbling fool. Even the Basil Rathbone Watson was a bumbling fool. And yet he wasn't. He was a medical doctor. He was highly intelligent. He wasn't Sherlock Holmes, but he wasn't meant to be. And he was the 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 opposite side of the same coin in the sense that he was the heart and soul of of, of the problem and, and Sherlock Holmes was the cold, hard reasoner. Um, but nevertheless, there were a lot of actors who played the Watson role that were very good. But I do I do I do agree with you. I think Peter Cushing was a fabulous actor, fabulous casting, but was entirely let down by the production and the story. Well, next up, yeah. the fabulous Jeremy Brett. I think that we we've pretty much covered it. You know, he was so <laughs> he's just so fantastic. He's so like spot on. And yeah, he wasn't like you said, he wasn't let down by by the production or, you know, maybe the writer's room in the same ways that Peter Cushing was, because he was also so clearly, like you said, a good Sherlock. But I think if there's only one thing, there's only one criticism I think I would levy on the show, not Jeremy Brett or, or Edward Hardwick, but the show itself, is that when Jeremy started to become ill and he became obviously too ill to play the part, they continued to make those last few stories for the memoirs. Mm -hmm. And they even had to have, I think, Charles Gray come in as Mycroft to take on a story because Jeremy was too ill to to actually do it. So they sort of recast and rewrote it a little bit. And I think if you, I, I have a couple of books that I, I've read and I recommend them to you. One is called Bending the Willow and the other one is called A Study in Celluloid. And they are stories about Jeremy, but they're about the production. They're from the production's point of view. And they really tell a very detailed story about how they were in a very difficult situation because of the love people had for Jeremy and because of Jeremy's passion for wanting to complete the series. Yeah. In the same way that David Suchet wanted to complete the entire Poirot series. Um, and yet it was evident that his illness had taken him to a point where he couldn't portray the role. I mean, he was four times the size he was by the end of it because of his medication, um, you know, and it was it was terrible that I think that the production decided to continue with those stories. But nevertheless, in every respect, I think he tr he took that role and tried to to, be, to make it as, as true to Conan Doyle's vision of Sherlock Holmes than I think anyone ever managed to get. I mean, Razzle Rathbone got very close. But I, I think that Jeremy was the closest. Yeah, of the of the versions that I've seen, to me, Brett still remains the definitive portrayal. And it doesn't make any of the other versions necessarily any less enjoyable. Uh -huh. uh, and, and of course, a lot of them, as we'll get into, you know, they're doing their own twists on it anyway. So they're not really competing with with something like the Brett show that was trying to be as true as possible to the source material. But I still find myself kind of measuring everyone else by Jeremy Brett. Yeah, I do too. It, it, you're right. I, I do exactly the same thing. Well, now, and speaking of being enjoyable, <laughs> we could we could move into the Robert Downey Jr. Uh, films, which, you know, I find them to be fun roller coaster rides. <laughs> They're a great <laughs> steampunk version of the Holmes yeah. um, idea. 
Uh, let's let's say that there was some great casting. I'm a fan of Robert Downey Jr. I I, I am. I'm not going to lie, but I thought his version of Sherlock Holmes was awful. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. And Jude Law's Watson was just as bad. I think the only saving grace for that, I think it may have been the first or the second film. I can't even really remember. Was that Stephen Fry was in it as as Mycroft. And, uh, uh, but as a story and as a steampunk kind of reimagined version of it, if they'd have gone a bit more along those lines and less of trying to reproduce Holmes, but trying to do what, for example, the BBC did with Sherlock and try to create this new idea of the, the Sherlock Holmes canon mm-hmm. in that way, I think it could have gone well, but it, it, it was. Yeah, I'm sorry. It was awful. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was was the problem for you that with the characters of Holmes and Watson themselves, were they did they not try to be different enough? Or they were was it that they were kind of close, but then not really the same characters we knew? I think my my problem with it was the Robbie. Robert Downey Jr. was absolutely the wrong person to be cast as Sherlock Holmes. His acting style, his uh, whole sort of way of acting did not lend itself to playing that role. That's just my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that I think Jude Law would have actually done a very good job as Watson had he been up against a Holmes who was perhaps more Holmesian. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I think what bothered me about it more was 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 a mixture of the casting and some of the changes that they tried to make. As I said earlier, I think if they'd have done this deliberately, this was all new. This was totally a, a complete set apart. It was an alternate universe, whatever you know, Sherlock yeah, Holmes. Yeah. Uh, you know, with Moriarty when turning up when he, they shouldn't even know who he is. I mean, all of that stuff could be answered and uh, arguably put aside in that wonder universe but they weren't trying to portray it that way they were saying that this was Sherlock Holmes for a new generation but in that Victorian era and it, even the gadgetry they had was just you know you can't just put things that make it come out you know make a machine that works on steam with cogs that can do fantastic things that we can't do in the 21st century and say <laughs> Victorian you just I mean you can't suspend your disbelief that far but yeah, I, I didn't care for them at all. I thought that I thought that the production was good, but I just didn't care for the concept. I definitely don't really, like, I don't see Sherlock in, or even Watson, like, I don't see Sherlock in RDJ in those movies. Like, I'm just, and I'm like, this is fun. I like when it's slow and he's he has the voiceover. Like, it's very, like, <laughs> this is a Hollywood summer blockbuster and, like, I big swooping shot of the Thames. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. 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 No, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I quite enjoyed them, but, you know, but very much as just, you know, a silly popcorn kind of movie. So I, I totally get what you're saying. You know, uh, all very valid criticisms that the uh, approach, yeah, it it is kind of muddled in that. Okay, what it what is it? Is it steampunk? Is it not steampunk? Is it if 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 they would have gone further with the steampunk, then I think you might have been able to suspend your disbelief more. 
Yeah. Uh, but since it was relatively close to reality and then just had these occasional departures, uh, yeah, you know, a little uneven in that regard. Um, but yeah, I would probably go back and watch them again um, just because I do enjoy Robert Downey Jr. Sure. and Jude Law. And so even when they're in something like this, I still found them fun to watch, although there were you know, certainly elements that... Um, one thing that I commented on in our original episode was how they changed uh, Sherlock's interaction with women. Yes. And, yes. you know, that gets to be quite a big departure. I think that's you're right. And I think that that was another thing. I think once I disconnected the idea that this was the Sherlock Holmes that I knew, I think I enjoyed the film. It was a bit like watching that young Sherlock Holmes where the whole concept was just <laughs> I, yeah. I could not get my head around it. He didn't know Watson as a child, you know, and all that. But nevertheless, once I disconnected the idea that these were the Sherlock Holmes and Watson that I knew from those, and this was a new version with a new idea, I quite enjoyed it. So I'm not going to say that I didn't enjoy the film because I did enjoy the film. I just didn't think it was a Sherlock Holmes film. And it didn't. Yeah. It didn't. It didn't come across that way to me. So I'm so interested to hear. Uh, what you thought about the BBC Sherlock with Benedict Cumberbatch when it aired. I loved it. <laughs> Absolutely loved every second of it. Um, not just because I'm a fan of Benedict Cumberbatch and Martin Freeman, but of course I am a huge Doctor Who fan and I have been since I was born. So um, I like soak up anything that Moffat and Mark Gattis and any of these people do. I thought it was brilliant for two reasons. One, because I didn't have to think of it as a Sherlock Holmes that I knew. It was set in the 21st century. It was brand new. Everything was on the table. Every possible idea that they had from those stories that they could check in. Plus, it gave me a whole set of stories that I didn't know the answer to. Um, and it was clever. I mean, it was very, very clever. I loved the characterization of Watson, uh, and I loved his interaction with Holmes, and I loved the fact that they made Holmes, you know, sort of a high-functioning sociopath, and, um, and, and of course, Benedict Cumberbatch played him brilliantly. But yes, I adored that series, and uh, I'm kind of glad that they didn't do any more, because I felt like that they really did it justice with the, what they did. And when they did the Victorian one, when they did the one that they kept switching back in a dream state and they were all in the Victorian era and and Benedict Cumberbatch dressed up exactly like Jeremy Brett's version of Sherlock Holmes with even with the folded under bow tie under the white collar and then of course you get that almost impression that these are those characters from that series and then when they go in the house they kind of almost slip back to the characters we knew when he said when 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 Mrs. Hudson says something like, oh, I'm not your I'm not your landlady, I'm your housekeeper or something. And he said, don't worry, Mrs. Hudson, I wasn't even in the dog one. <laughs> and I just thought it was brilliant. I thought it was a brilliant concept. And Mark Gattis is a, uh, I like him as an actor and a writer. Um, and, uh, you know, the whole period of time from uh, Matt Smith right the way through to the end of Peter Capaldi as the Doctor was obviously the Moffat era. And, um, you know, I just, I've, I've been a huge fan of his complex kind of intelligent writing. Some people aren't. Some people don't like it. They, they don't want it to be too complicated. But um, what I liked about the Sherlock series was I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> In some ways, it was still more true to the source material yes. than other things. 
because yes. of the, the the clever ways that they updated things. Holmes always uh, texting instead of sending telegrams and, and stuff like that, that they found these analogs between the source material and modern life and were able to use those in uh, very clever ways. And then just the behavior of the characters and uh, you know, treating Watson as a professional soldier who, you know, knew what he was doing and was smart. And uh, yeah, I love particularly those first two seasons. For for myself, I, you know, I I like a complicated story. But as they got into the third and fourth seasons, I thought sometimes they were they did get a little too complicated for me. Wow. <laughs> that that I just felt like they were just you know, trying so hard to be so clever and complex and everything is a puzzle and it's kind of like this Mobius strip. Everything folds back in on itself. And, for, and uh, you know, I was almost ready for someone to come out and say it's, you know, a timey-wimey thing. It's just like, I don't even yes. know what's happening anymore. It did get very Doctor Who-esque. <laughs> right? yeah. yes. And I agree. I agree with you. I but, think that, uh, that that's been levied against Stephen Moffat and Mark, and, and Mark Gattis a number of times of the complexity of what they're trying to put together or, or, or the cleverness of what they're trying to portray can be yeah. too much. But I, yeah, I, I, I do enjoy a lot of their work and I enjoyed a lot of their work on Doctor Who. And, you know, if the stories get a little bit too much for me, I still respect that they're just going all out. You're not going to get a half effort from them. No, no, no. So, so, so even if it doesn't land for me, I still, you know, salute them. <laughs> I no, just I, rewatched right. the first episode of Sherlock like a couple of weeks ago. And I feel like every time I go to rewatch it, I'm like worried it's not going to be as good as I remember it being because I watched <laughs> it for the first time in like middle school. Right. And so yeah. when I go back, I'm like. It might not be as good this time. Just prepare yourself that you're like a different person. Yeah. It might be different every time. It's just as good as it was <laughs> the first time I watched it and had my little mind blown in like the eighth grade. I, well, yeah. Yeah, because we're, this when, when we recorded our first Sherlock Holmes episode, it was 2012. Right. For an old person like me, nine years you know, that's not that big a deal. <laughs> I get what you but, <laughs> but, for a, but for a college-age student now... Well, yeah, yeah the nine-year nine nine jump years, from, from eighth grade or ninth grade to, yeah. like, yeah, now, to 23, That's a, those are some yeah, interesting those, years. That's absolutely. a lot. It's, I, you know, I there's lots of stuff them. still cooking in there. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. Uh, I... And, and just to get back to your point, uh, the, the 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 fascination, you see, I do the same thing every now and then I'll go, oh, you know what? I haven't seen that for a while. I'd like to do a, a rewatch. And I like, well, I know what's going to happen. So am I going to be, you know, as surprised by it? Am I going to be quite as excited by it? And I'm then I, then the, those credits roll. That music starts. I'm in. Done. It's, it's like I've never watched it. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I love it so much. It might be, it might just be my favorite because it is just so captivating. Yeah. I don't know. And I think now, because I've been obviously writing a lot more of, of these stories and delving into the, um, the sort of the history of it and the mythos of it and so on. And I've started to see where, for example, Conan Doyle made 
errors in his writing that later on Sherlock's series, of course, picked up on those errors and fixed them in a way that was not um, looking down their nose at the author or, or, or anything like that. But just to say that, yeah, we, you know, we've known for years that this was a mistake, a, a significant one. In the story Silver Blaze, for example, <clears throat> Holmes's big reveal at the end was to wipe, use a sponge to wipe the horse's nose and then and then the horse that ran in the race turns out to be Silver Blaze. Everybody's happy. But the reality is, is that if he'd done that, they not only would have lost the, the money that they won from the horse, they would have also been put in prison because it was fraud. And and so, of course, the Granada TV series recognized that and they fixed it by having Holmes reveal the horse before the race. And that, you know, little things like that, that obviously Conan Doyle just made an error. I mean, we all do it. But uh, I, um, But I think... The Sherlock series was so different and so abstract from the originals and yet faithful to the story ideas. <clears throat> I don't think that there's anything, there's been anything better. Well, and I was also thinking like when we were talking about Robert Downey Jr., I was like, he's not recognizable as Sherlock to me. Like this is very different. And Benedict, it's like the show is very different and the characters are in their own way, like very different. But it's still I feel like I'm it's still recognizable. Yes. Like I'm like, yes. oh, that's that is like Sherlock Holmes or that is Watson, even though it's like this modern sort of like molded version of them. Yeah, because the descriptions of the characters are, are, are solid and and therefore when you cast somebody in that role. And I'll give you an example because I just recently rewatched this and that was Saria McKellen's um, Sherlock Holmes story that was set when he was in his 90s and it was a flashback sort of story. Brilliant. Loved it. But their depictions of those actors who play it are instantly recognisable when you see them, even if you see them in the Deerstalker and the Pipe and so on, you know that they're Sherlock Holmes. And yet you can put someone like Robert Downey Jr. And I say, I feel like I'm overly criticizing him because, but I love him as an actor in that role. And it, it would be like, I don't know, putting Tom Holland in the role. And it <laughs> just wouldn't, you know, it's just, it just wouldn't work. <clears throat> I was going to say, there's almost more of Sherlock in him when he's playing Iron Man, honestly, oh, than yes. in this one. Because <laughs> yes. he's, he's really nailing like, oh, I'm a genius asshole in Marvel movies at bare minimum. You know what I mean? And so I was <laughs> like. And when, and when, and when Robert Downey Jr. and Benedict Cumberbatch are together in the Avengers film and the way they interact, I thought was brilliant because there was definitely a sense that there was a one-upmanship going on between those two <laughs> actors as well as characters. Uh, did they're you just say I love that line, sorry. <laughs> no, their like first scene together in Infinity War is so like hysterical and just yeah, amazing. They're both funny as well. I mean in their own way. I mean Robert Downey Jr.'s character Iron Man was hilarious. Yeah, and, oh yeah. Doctor yeah, Strange, who was so so much the opposite in many respects and so much more sort of conceit well, they both have a level of conceitedness and they have a level of their own importance. But when he broke and became who he became, he still had this comic side to him that he wasn't even trying to do. And I think that's Benedict Cumberbatch, to be fair. <laughs> I don't even think it ever occurred to me while watching the Marvel movies. I don't think it ever like came to a conscious level where I was like, oh, there's two Holmeses there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I don't think I ever thought of it that way. So that was uh, that was a, a fun thing to bring up. 
But I, I did want to round off our uh, recap of our first episode by the last thing that we discussed, and that was Johnny Lee Miller in Elementary. Oh, yes. And what is your take on that? Well, I actually <laughs> thought the concept was great. I liked it. I like the concept of it. I like the idea of, again, it's a 20th century version of the show with a different appeal, with a different audience set, you know, in, in America and with a female Watson, if I remember rightly. Yep, yep Lucy Liu. Uh, I thought it was very good. I thought that the formulaic way the show went, like a sort of a CSI series or one of mm-hmm. these series, I think grated on me a little bit by the end, um, in the same way that a lot of these formulaic um, serial shows, like crime shows, can go. Nevertheless, I thought the concept was good. I didn't really think that the actor was great to start with, but I think he kind of found his feet by the sort of second or third episode. And then by the end of the season, you know, he was really good in the role. He was cemented in the role. You knew who he was and you knew how he behaved and reacted. Uh, I loved the idea of a female Watson. Um, I thought that was fabulous and I thought that she was great. Um, and, you know, her her entire role was different. But nevertheless, it really paired well with him and those two actors paired well together too. So, yeah, I thought it was a great show. I mean, I yeah. didn't fully... I didn't complete it. I didn't go through all the seasons. Um, but with the first sort of season or the first six or seven episodes that I did watch, I did enjoy. Our take on our first episode is so funny to listen to now because at the time we recorded it, only two episodes of Elementary had aired. Okay. And neither of us enjoyed the first episode that much. So so little for Ella that she didn't even watch the next episode. Right. But I gave it when another chance. In, you know, the ninth grade. Yeah. And then I so I watched the second episode and the best I could say about the second episode was that it was better than the first. And then I can't even remember if I watched the third episode or if I gave up right after the second episode. But then like a year or two passed and I was hearing friends of mine talking, you know, they'd be tweeting about it or whatever uh was there twitter back then maybe this was on facebook i can't remember but i would see them online saying something about how much they were enjoying elementary and i thought well hmm okay maybe i'll go back and give it another try and so i went back and like you said you get a little bit further into that first season and then it really seems like they found themselves. They yeah. they they found their groove, and I ended up watching the entire series and really enjoying it from start to finish. Um, I mean, they had their ups and downs like any show, and I completely get what you're saying about it did have that classic formula of a lot of American, or, or even British for that matter, uh, wow. Uh, weekly crime shows and so you know in in some ways you kind of know what you're going to get every every time but they really did try to um, bring in some twists and turns from the the canon uh, you know when when they brought in their version of 
Irene Adler and, and, and some of that stuff and Moriarty. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So Wasn't I, that I, Natalie Dormer? Yes. She's so good. She oh. is. There's a twisted history between those shows because Elementary started, the American production company was trying to buy the American rights to Sherlock. And oh, like they wanted to make like literally just like the, the American version. Yes. Of and BBC Sherlock. Oh, I didn't yes, know that. Yes. And and the BBC or whoever you know was controlling the rights, uh, Moffat, whatever, said no. And so then they decided, well, okay, we'll just start from scratch. Then they approached. <laughs> uh johnny lee miller to star in it and he and cumberbatch are old friends but then i think johnny kind of went to to benedict and said you know is it okay if i <laughs> do this thing because you know feels a little bit odd but um but yeah so then they both ended up playing sherlock in different ways which was, was pretty interesting can we just say something a little about the actor John Noble. I love him and I feel like he would be the best Sherlock Holmes mm. ever. Like I mean, not not to take away from people like Jeremy Brett, because that's legacy that can't be undone. But the fact is is that John Noble is an amazing actor. And I've always felt like he's so underused in certain ways. I mean I watched the T V show Fringe, for example, and he was Yeah phenomenal in that he was obviously in the world I mean, he's been in so many things but in that show i just kept thinking to myself when i saw him and i was like oh, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be how, long, how much more interesting would it be <laughs> you know he's oh, a great yeah actor. that he would be a great sherlock him and lucy lou together come on <laughs> i mean like, that would have been great and he is great i mean we met him at uh shore leave one year and he is just a, a great, fun, goofy guy. He was, like, getting into fisticuffs with a Dalek. <laughs> yeah, it was, like, as we were there, like, as I was getting my, like, autograph, yeah, somebody came down with a Dalek, and he got up and was, like, yeah, doing old-fashioned, like, boxing, like, got his knees up high and was, like, with it. It was so funny. I just feel like, you know, when you see certain actors and you think, oh, you know, it would be fun to meet them because... Um, that they, I feel like that they would be real fun in real life, and he is one of those ones that I'm, I'm. He's on my top of my list to meet, along with like Kate Mulgrew and a few others. I mean, I've met quite a few of the Star Trek cast people from different events, and and and, and that's been great, and they've all been wonderful. But you know, John Noble, Kate Mulgrew, a few others, you know, Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen. These are all people. Ian McKellen, I would love to meet him. I mean, he he just yeah. seems like fun guy you know a proper fun guy and i could say going back to his sherlock holmes portrayal um it was very hard to watch holmes yes. as an old man with um you know onset dementia of some description where he couldn't quite make the connections that he could and uh it was very hard to watch it, but I'm so glad that I did because in some ways it felt like there was a resolution because obviously we don't know what happened to Holmes after um, Conan Doyle stopped writing him. Um, all we have is all of the hundreds of pastiches out there, including mine, um, <laughs> which have 
a different interpretation of what home what happened to homes and Watson, whether whether Watson outlived Holmes or Holmes outlived Watson and so on. But I thought that that was a really, really interesting story and very well told, too. Yes, I. Yeah, it is one of those things where it's almost hard to say that you enjoyed it because it is such a sad film. Mm. But, you know, yeah, obviously McKellen's performance is amazing. And yeah, uh, yeah I mean, definitely any any Holmes fan needs needs to watch that film at some point. But uh, with the with the Kleenex handy. <laughs> yeah, without <laughs> doubt. Yeah. I'm 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 drawing a blank at the name. Oh, it's Mr. Holmes. That's the name of the. Yeah. Movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've been I've been trying my hardest like to remember it, but. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't uh, remember it either. <clears throat> uh, yeah, it has a great cast too uh, of people, but I thought I thought that they did a good job of not trying too hard to recreate a new version of that. When you see the flashbacks, you could almost imagine him being an older Jeremy Brett, you know, yeah. kind of the way he held himself and the, the the style of dress. And that filming, that very clever filming where he's walking behind pillars following this person and the person kind of um, catches him out and says, I know you're following me. And I like the line that, that Holmes says in some of the stories, but... Jeremy Brett delivered it quite well in that um, when he says, you know, I followed you. And he says, um, I didn't see you. That is what you would expect to see if I follow you. You know, and I like that kind of. <laughs> um, and so in that in that respect, I always considered that he deliberately put himself in a situation where he would be seen. That's why she saw him. Otherwise, he she would never have seen him, you know. Yeah. But yeah. I've never seen it, I've but never... I do imagine that it would be like just by the end, it would just be just tears, just waterfall. Yeah, it's, it's, it's <laughs> a sad film. It is a sad film. And, and it's one of those films, I think, that just doesn't let up. It's not mm-hmm. there's no real, real sort of moments of light and lucidness. It's just a sad film from beginning to end. I mean, you get a resolution, but. Yeah, I loved it, but I found it, yeah, I was the same. I was sitting there thinking to myself, oh, wow, this is really quite difficult material to watch, especially when it's a character that you've known all your life, you know, and suddenly someone is showing you, okay, well, this superhero, because Sherlock Holmes was the first ever superhero without a cape. He he was this <laughs> marvellous man. He could solve all these things. He had a brain that would retain all these, you know, minuscule facts of everything, and yet here he is as a normal human being going through the aging process. And it, yeah, it's, I think that was probably what for me made it hard to watch because you'd never imagine your superheroes can't get out of bed without help because they're old and frail. <laughs> yeah. You know? Should we move on to the new content here? So next thing we have on our list is Enola Holmes, which I don't know how you felt about it. I, I, when I watched it, and I watched it the day it came out, and I made my roommate sit down with me. It also happened that they were both home at the time. And so I was like, sit down. We're gonna we're, we're doing something. And I like made dinner. And I felt like my drive to watch Enola Holmes wasn't that, like, as a 23-year-old right now, I need to watch Enola Holmes. Although maybe as a 23-year-old right now, I did want to see Henry Cavill as Sherlock. <laughs> but that's, like, besides the point. But... I want it like if if this movie had come uh huh if this movie had come out between the age of, if I was between like eight and twelve when this movie came out the course of my life would have changed 
<laughs> it would have become my entire identity. It like I would have been like making my dad like print out pictures, screenshots, weird screenshots in this movie. I would have absolutely lost my mind. And that's why I felt when I saw the trailer, I was like, they made this for me, but me 10 years ago. But then they were like, oh, throw Henry Cavill in there because, you know, why not throw him in anywhere? But, and I did yeah. enjoy it. I did enjoy it. I thought it was very fun, but I definitely was like, this is a movie for me at a crisp, like 11 years old. <laughs> well, uh, Millie Bobby Brown is, of course, I mean, she's, she's, so good. she's very talented. And, and so she was great casting. I also really enjoyed it. Um, you know, they did, they had some pretty contemporary uh, editing techniques and like some of the titles and stuff, the way they did it was, you know, kind of flashy, you know, kind of established a playful tone and it was fun and she was great. Yeah, I, I, I quite enjoyed it. And I think Cavill was an interesting casting choice for Sherlock. Uh, uh, now, Chris, did you get a chance to see it? I, I can't remember. Oh, yes. Yes, I did. <laughs> um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I like the complete, uh, I like the idea of it, I like the concept of it. Um, throw in uh, Francis de la Tour and um, uh, Helen Bonacarta and you go. <laughs> it's it's it, it was great. Um, I thought the concept was really cool because obviously they're trying to come up with a a new take on it to attract people into a franchise potentially. I understand there's a second film or a second one being made. Yes. Um, but the 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 sort of con- the controversy aside for a second over the Arthur Conan Doyle estate, the idea behind it, a younger Holmes or the younger Holmes brothers was good because I thought that the the sister who had obviously all the skills of both, but perhaps a little bit, a little bit of a little bit of each of them mm-hmm. um, to enable them her to come up with a different kind of path. So she's not just a replica of Sherlock or a replica of Mycroft. She's her own person, but she has elements of them um, in, in her portrayal of the role. But I, no, I thought it was very good. My husband and I watched it, and we really loved it. So, yeah. And then Helen Bonacara, yeah. <laughs> you can't go wrong. <laughs> I love her. And, and not many people know who Frances de la Tour is. She's been in so many things. I mean, obviously, if people watch Harry Potter, then they know her from that. But um, she's been in a lot of these mystery-esque stories throughout the years. She's been in Poirot's. She's been, you know, in the TV adaptations, I mean. Um, she was actually in Love Actually, but they cut her entire scenes out. So it's in, if you watch that film, but you watch the sort of deleted scenes, she has a whole segment in that storyline that they removed. But uh, she's a fabulous actress. So, yeah, it was good. It, everything about it was good. Oh, and um, uh, Claire Rushbrook uh, is another one I, I like, another actress I like who was in it too. And Henry Cavill, obviously. And Henry Cavill. It was so it was so funny again because I did force my roommates to watch it. My roommate Gabby, I've we've known each other for like ten years, and she's always loved Sam Cavill. 
And so it was hilarious yeah. because I was so excited, like, for the movie overall. But also I was like, Henry Cavill is Sherlock? Who did this for us? <laughs> and so I was like, yeah. ah! every time that Henry Cavill was on screen. And then Gavin was like, look, there he is. Like, not knowing at all what's going on in the movie and not knowing anything. Except she's like, look, there, I like him too. He was in the Hunger Games. <laughs> he's been getting a lot of good roles lately he's been you know i mean obviously since he burst onto the international scene with the obviously the whole superman uh but i think he's he's, he's been getting quite a lot of these sort of meteor roles and he's you're seeing quite a lot of his acting abilities and he has a dynamic that most people wouldn't have credited him for i think he's very good i can only echo <laughs> everything that you guys have said it was just so likable so much fun another great role for millie she's had a pretty wide variety of of characters in just being in a few things really that have really hit big and and she just seems to like eat up any role that she takes i mean like her in godzilla it's like the new godzilla movies are like fun but like I think sort of weak, except for Millie still is just like killing it the whole way through. Yeah, yeah, hundred fifty percent in a in a role. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to the next one. Me too. Now the next Netflix series has not had as much luck. <laughs> so the Irregulars has recently been uh, canceled after only its uh, first eight episode series. For people who haven't seen it, it's um, about the the Baker Street Irregulars. You know, so this is taken from canon that uh, Holmes would use these uh, street urchins to uh, help him out on things. And uh, but they've you know really put a twist in it that the uh, these kids are working for Watson, and there are supernatural elements added and. It's also very contemporary for both good and ill. I mean, it's. I think one thing that's really fun about it is that it's very contemporary in its casting, and so it's a much more uh, ethnically diverse cast than uh, what you would uh, expect from a lot of Victorian set dramas, and so that's fun. Uh, But then they also did the whole very contemporary dialogue thing which at first kind of threw me but after i got used to it i was okay with it primarily i think for me on the strength of the lead character the 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 lead character the young woman that's leading this little group of of kids that become the irregulars i just find her performance to be so strong uh now i've only gotten a chance to see the first couple of episodes and so I'm not quite sure where they're going to go or where they're going to end up. Probably on a horrible cliffhanger, I would imagine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I only watched the first two episodes, too. Um, I didn't go beyond that. Um, I think I'm going to echo most of what you said in the sense that I thought that the casting was excellent. And I thought that the diversity of the young actors acting skills was very very good in fact it's a shame that they won't get an opportunity to develop themselves in this kind of setting because i think it's a good setting for them to do so um i liked the casting of watson um and i liked the casting of uh of the sort of 
shadowy Holmesian kind of character. The actors are well known, um, but I like the fact that it was not a story about them at all. Um, in fact, you know, it's almost given the impression that Sherlock Holmes is actually doesn't really, nobody knows if he really exists. You know, it's kind of almost like it's always been Watson that's been pulling these strings for these regular types. That's the impression I got. Yeah. I just did not like the concept at all because I always find myself whenever a Sherlock Holmes story of any description tries to delve into the supernatural, I remember that line um, from Holmes who says, um, no ghosts need apply. This, 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 uh, uh, what is it? He said this, this agency remains flat footed uh, in the real world and no ghosts need apply. And I like, you know, obviously they want to come up with an alternative. You know, the Supernatural series had just finished. It had a massive fan base. And tapping into the Supernatural is, is I love the Supernatural. I think that, that as a conceptual show um, and story-wise, story it's great. But I just didn't, I just couldn't make the connections. And I think what happened is I went into it knowing that and perhaps was a little bit, um, I, perhaps I'd made my mind up before I'd allowed myself to sort of enjoy it a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it didn't tick any of the boxes for me, I'll be honest with you. Yeah, I, and I haven't decided if I'm going to get back to it because part of me is, you know, I was kind of on the fence about it, and then you find out that it's been cancelled. Yeah. And and so if I start watching the next few episodes and it really hooks me, be, <laughs> then it's just going to be that much more... Uh, maddening that I know that it's the, that it's already over that there is no cliffhanger ah okay because I did I mean I'm not going to spoil anything but I did read every um, sort of synopsis or precy of every episode in, mm -hmm. in preparation for our chat today and I can tell you that if you watch all eight episodes they do they do come to a complete conclusion as if you know it starts or would start anew in the second season. So you, you would get to a point at the end where you go, well, I don't want to watch the ending because there's no point because I'm going to be like left waiting for some answers. Um, actually, I don't think that that's going to be the case. I think it, it ties it all back together nicely. So I might. So I think from that perspective, I want to watch. Yeah, I, I, I might uh, have to wrap it up at some point then and get back to it. I think it also, like to talk about like just like and I didn't watch any of it and maybe I would have felt more drive to if it had gotten like really good reviews and everyone was very excited and I'm sure that I will but I feel like any sort of tv show movie that tries to work in supernatural concepts paranormal stuff I feel like people have difficulty somehow like and whether it's like just like the production of it they have difficulty pulling it off or whether it's just like people watching it it's like it's hard to make a paranormal tv show that i feel like is not like meant to be a scary show like a horror show right. which like you mentioned like the tv show supernatural did something like was able to kind of pull it off for a lot of a lot of seasons but um yeah i don't know i guess that was just really my only thought because it was like already kind of a big to be like, oh, yeah, we'll do, like, this tiny part of the original, like, canon of Sherlock. And then we'll also make it, like, ghosty is, like, th that would be difficult to pull off for anybody. <laughs> you know, they could have done this really well without adding any supernatural element whatsoever. They could have had 
um, you know, a small bunch of the irregulars were the police force that Sherlock Holmes used. They could go anywhere. They could be unseen. Um, they they would basically be able to. I mean, I use them in my stories. You know, they they are able to find um, a lot. I mean, in my and I think that the reality is is that if they had come up with the concept of a of a group of people led by Wiggins who was actually solving crimes or at least getting them to the point where they could solve crimes and then at the last minute maybe they had to get Holmes and Watson involved and somehow I think that would have worked as a story concept and I think that would have actually worked very well because you would get these young actors being in that difficult environment of the Victorian period where children are not really treated very well and yet these they're intelligent they're able to get what they need I think that was would have worked as a better concept but you know they had to give it a go um and um like a lot of these short-lived tv shows i think uh, the intention is always good but when the hard reality is netflix is a big organization putting a lot of money behind its um uh, new tv shows i mean in the same way that you know look at um the disney channel i mean they're just creating new content all the time and they're throwing buckets of money at it if it's not going to work they're going to know pretty quickly and they're going to say right you know let's move on to something else because we can't just chuck money at this if it's not going to return i mean it's a business as if they'd made this as a film oh yeah film like a an hour and a half film that instead of eight episodes and but that might have done better for them because the, the production is only for one film and then you know they could see whether or not a tv show would would work off of it but i don't know perhaps that's why i'm not a netflix you know head of uh, media <laughs> or whatever no i think you're right i think you're right and i also think you know netflix especially is so hardcore about chopping shows if they're not like if it's not like Stranger Things viral, which obviously that's a pretty extreme example, but it's if it's not Stranger Things, they're like done after a season, which, you know, is like, it, it has pros and cons, I feel like both for the viewers and for the yeah. um, platform, but. I also think that, that there's a part of me that when I read through every episode synopsis and it, you know, so I know what happens in every episode and the way the series ended, part of me thinks that they may have already assumed that perhaps it wasn't going to be as successful as they hoped. And so they wrote it down as a sort of complete set of stories in the sense that if they took up the option for a second series, then they could start fresh with it rather than, I think we've seen with these shows where they've been successful, they kind of know immediately and you know by the end of the series because there's a massive cliffhanger that makes you want to come into the next series. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 hypothesizing on that, but uh, yeah. I, but you're right. I think they they realized right away. Okay, this is not going to work. Let's move on to uh, something that we did not cover at all in our original Holmes episode, and that is the long history of authors beyond Doyle writing new print adventures, including, of course, yourself, as you've alluded to. Before we dig into your books. Could you tell us a little bit about some of your favorite non-canon Holmes authors? Oh yeah, um, actually there are there are a few. Um, one of uh, I've got one here. Um, it's called The Exploits of Sherlock Holmes. I think this is one of the earliest non-Arthur Conan Doyle 
book of short stories of Sherlock Holmes that um, that I got. And it's a, it says it's a collection of Sherlock Holmes adventures based on unsolved cases from the original stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and actually written by Adrian Conan Doyle and John Dixon Carr. Oh, and yeah. That's, that's, and this is what, when I read these, I thought, wow, they, these are clever because if you're in a lot of the Sherlock Holmes stories at the beginning, Watson always says, and I recall the case of the, uh, you know, the, the how they solved the, murder because the parsley sank two inches into the butter and something like that yeah. but these are the stories written that were referenced by Conan Doyle as cases that what Holmes had worked on but never uh, never wrote stories about so that's one Adrian Conan Doyle and John Dixon Carr I'd recommend them uh, if you're starting out on the pastiche style um, there's another guy who I really like and his name is Paul D Gilbert um, and he writes a number of books. In fact, the Chronicle book that he has actually has Jeremy Britt on the, on, on the cover. <laughs> I I don't know how you guys feel, but I feel that the Watson and Holmes stories that really stand out are definitely the ones that are perhaps a little bit longer than the, the very short versions, you know, the very short stories. But there are exceptions. Like the Hound of the Baskerville story for me has always been a great story to read. I love that story because most of it is Watson just telling what he's doing and trying to sort of figure it out. And then Holmes appears and blah, blah, blah. The thing with Holmes in these stories, which it's very hard to do, is is because he's all knowing, all seeing and can solve everything and figure everything out very easily most of the time with little help. Um, you always know that when he's there, he's going to just say, oh, yes, well, that's because of X and Y and Z. And so I think it's nice when you get stories that Watson is trying to sort of say, oh, well, I had to go off and do this all on my own. And then I was sending telegrams back to Holmes and he was writing to me and that kind of thing. Um, Sign of the Four, in, in retrospect, is a great story because it's uh, a chase story where they're chasing the clues around London and all over the place. And Watson's just sort of hanging on for the ride. But, Holmes and a dog and everything else. And I think that that's really good. These short stories, though, they really kind of capture some of the earlier elements of the, the relationship be between Holmes and Watson. Because I think that what's happening in a lot of stories is, is that most people know who Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson are, and most people know that they have a relationship, friendship, whatever. So it's never really about them. It's always about just the case. And I'm more into the stories that sort of give us a little bit more insight into why Holmes is the way he is or why Watson thinks the way he does and thinks of Holmes the way he does. So those are really good. There's one other one. This is a, an author that I have read a lot of his stuff, and I love it. And his name is James uh, Lovegrove. Um, and this is uh, the, one of the books that he has written. It's called Sherlock Holmes, Gods of War. And it's very, very, very close to your idea of the Watson and Holmes characterizations, their relationships. And Sherlock Holmes is pretty arrogant. He's very, very arrogant. And Watson puts up with that arrogance all the time and until he can't anymore. And then he has to have a little bit of a, why, God, Holmes, why are you such a, you know, why are you so arrogant? Why are you so... And then he's like, my dear fellow, I do apologise. And then it all kind of get calms down. In this story, this one, the, the one that's called The Gods of War, it's actually set in 1913, before uh, the First World War. And 
it's a story which I was interested in because it's telling the story a little bit more from Holmes at the end of his career, if you like, um, where he'd given up London and he'd moved to Sussex and he now keeps bees and all that kind of stuff. Um, but really keeping it true to that story. So, um, so those are a few names that I that I read. Obviously, there are many, many pastiche writers out there, and um, can't imagine reading them all. It would take forever. What one series that I've read? There's a writer named Carol Nelson Douglas, mm-hmm. and, and she's done a series that are actually Irene Adler stories. Yep. Occasionally, Holmes and Watson show up, sort of in cameos. And uh, and I found those pretty enjoyable. She did s- several of them. Now, I just finished reading uh, The Italian Secretary by Caleb Carr. Oh, yeah, I want to read that. That looks good. It's, well, you have to prepare yourself because it has hints of supernatural. Uh, that's okay. I can... <laughs> <laughs> I can cope with that. So it's it's funny that you had, were that we were talking about that earlier because it really threw me. I picked up this book and I start reading it, and you know, and I was enjoying the characterizations, and then there started being these little hints of a possible ghost, and I was kind of like, "What?" Then so I get through the whole book, and you know, and I enjoyed it, but I was still kind of like, "Yeah, I really don't know about this ghost business." And then there was an afterword. And in the afterword, it's explained that this was originally solicited as a short story for an anthology of Sherlock Holmes stories that were all, you know, with, with supernatural themes. Oh, I see. Right, right, right. And but Caleb Carr ended up writing far over <laughs> the word count. <laughs> and so they ended up publishing it separately as a uh, as a shorter novel but part of me wishes that i had read that up front so i would have understood yeah why there was this supernatural element or you know potential supernatural element it's very subtle in some ways i have to be careful if you want to read it i want to get you know it's not really a turning point of the story it's just part of the atmosphere um but it still left me kind of wondering why did Caleb Carr do this? And then, and so then finding out that it had this uh, background as a themed anthology thing made sense to me. Um, <clears throat> but of course, you know, Caleb Carr is a well-respected author and he did a pretty good job with the uh, characters as you would expect. The only other uh, pastiche that I've read so far was this crazy thing by the Wellmans, father and son, and they did a mashup of Sherlock Holmes and Professor Challenger from the Lost World stories of Doyle. Yep. And yep. they threw those characters into the War of the Worlds. Oh, great. And it's it, interesting. Yeah. And it, it's actually three novellas that were kind of, that were uh, appeared as separate stories. And then they, um, put them together and did some uh, revising and stuff to make them flow a little bit more as a as a story. But it's still like this story in three parts. I would recommend any fan of Doyle and Wells. It is definitely interesting to read, and it is interesting to see 
uh, Holmes and Challenger interacting because, of course, Challenger is even more obnoxiously arrogant than Holmes. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the two of them together. <laughs> and, and, and of course, I'm a huge fan of War of the Worlds, and so I'm a sucker for anything that's going to play off that. So it is, yeah, it's a strange history behind it and kind of an interesting read. But the supernatural element has always been kind of loosely around the Holmesian character, even though he flatly refuses to believe in it. We had the Sussex vampires and we've had the Hound of the Baskerville, which of course was supposed to be a hellhound. And of course, Conan Doyle had his spiritual beliefs, um, which uh, he he later go on to write quite a lot about. And I think that there is, it's an interesting dichotomy between the solid, flat-footed, we are not going to move beyond this real-life agency, no ghost need apply nonsense, to actually Conan Doyle's own beliefs, which he had very strong opinions on this sort of supernatural. Yeah. So I think if he'd seen that kind of mesh-up, I think he would have quite liked it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in some ways it's kind of surprising that he kept them as separate as he did, given how deep into the uh, the spirituality of, of the time period. I mean, that was, you know, all the rage. <laughs> yes. Uh, back in the day, and so uh, generally he kept Holmes in the science of the time period. There was one other I was going to mention to you, and that was um, a book, which is a collection of short stories, again, called Holmes for the Holidays. Oh, yes, I've seen that around. It's brilliant. Um, Anne Perry and a few others. Um, it It's just one of those books where, you know, it it's lighthearted, but intricately intelligent and a lot of the different authors really get it you know they really get Holmes's character there were a couple in there that I thought hmm you know the characterizations were not quite right but you know nevertheless it that's a, that's a very good one and I um, and the idea I think behind them is well, most of the stories um, feature uh, some kind of crime but in the Christmas period Mm-hmm. Hence the reason why Holmes for the holidays. So um, that's pretty cool. Although um, it's got an element that I like because, of course, the Victorian Christmas period, you know, seems to be like the the archetypal. Like if you think of a British Christmas, you think of that. Yeah. Um, that's why this this story really appeals um, any time of the year because you really get that sense of it. And I think even in the Jeremy Brett TV show, they did a couple. I think it was possibly the blue carbuncle where it was all set at christmas time and uh that that was a great story and there's an interesting thing about the the first two or three episodes because they filmed them in advance but they showed the third one they filmed as their first to give the impression to the audience that these two actors who were playing the roles for the first time together and bearing in mind david burke who played Watson was a lead actor, um, and that's why he was um, billed as it was Jeremy Brett and David Burke rather than Jeremy Brett with David Burke, you know, because he was a lead theatre actor, and um, he they did that they did that filming so that they could have an episode where the two of them were very you know because they'd done three episodes they'd worked together long enough and it gave that feel that they had they were close together, yeah. And so you see them out of sequence. I think the solitary cyclist was the first one they filmed together, which was sort of the third or fourth episode in the series. 
Um, and if you watch it with that knowledge now, you'll see that there's a little bit, they're not quite gelled together, the date that, that they, they, they later got. But of course, you know, I love David Burke, but then when Edward Hardwick came along, he cemented the, the Watson of my Watson with that. But these, all these pastiches, you know, they all, one thing they have in common, which I like, is that they've tried their best to emulate the sort of idea of Conan Doyle's characterization of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, but they haven't copied it. Yeah. Because they can't. No one can. You, you can't do that. It just, it's impossible to say, I'm going to write this. It's going to be so authentic that you can read, you'll read a Conan Doyle story, you'll read my story, and you'll never be able to tell the difference between the two. And of course you can. So I like the fact that they've said, look, this is my interpretation, but I'm trying to sort of stay as close to those characterizations as possible. Also, Homes for the Holidays is objectively the funniest thing that I've ever heard in my life. So <laughs> I can't believe I haven't read that three times already. <laughs> it's, it really is good. <laughs> I think maybe you mentioned this earlier, just sort of in passing, but was it the non-canon... Sherlock Holmes works that inspired you to want to write the characters yourself or did it just sort of happen naturally as you were getting into the stories when you were younger? You know I didn't really write any Holmesian stuff till much much later I mean I didn't get into writing until after college and so on um, because I didn't really think I was going to be any good at it and then I started to write a story um, actually the first book I wrote was a book which I've never released because it requires far too much work to make it a story that could be released. But I, I was 19, you know, it was 26 years ago or something, I don't know. Um, and it was called Holographic Gaslight. Um, and the idea was that it was a set 21st century or 20th century, sorry, 20th century story of set in the Holmesian timeline where characters were descendants of, you know, the Chief Inspector Lestrade in my police story was a descendant of Inspector Lestrade and so on. And there was a story that was going on in London, some crime, with these actors in it, you know, DeFerris, Lord DeFerris, uh, and this guy called Dawson, who turns out to be this potentially uh, time-travelling alien. And then while they're doing the search, they, they come across in you know, in, in Lestrade's father's, grandfather's drawer, an old manuscript written by Watson. And that manuscript was what turned into a scandalous affair. And I wrote that separately and then I interspersed it throughout so it would change to that period and you would get that and then it would go back and then they would sort of get some answer in that piece of the story that wouldn't move on to the next. As it turned out, when, when you read the story as a, as a whole, and I had a friend of mine called John Templeton Smith, who's a, a, another uh, well-established author, and he was a peer, he said to me, you know, these stories work better if they were split apart. The concept is good, but you really have two actually good stories here, but you need to separate them. And then I put it away. I didn't, I didn't touch it again. And then... I don't know when I, 2013 was when I published my next, my first book, which was of course a mystery book called Sir Lawrence Dies, where I'd created my own characters. And then I think it was 2019, late 2019, I decided to dust off this Sherlock Holmes story because I just finished 
a four book series called the Songs of the Osiren or the Osiren series, which was four books that take me four years to do. And I wanted to do something very different. And I dusted off this Sherlock Holmes story and I thought, you know, I could, I think this could work if I just made it a story on its own and cut out all the, the relevant links to all this other stuff and took away all this time traveling nonsense and blah, blah, blah. Because it was very true to the original story that Holmes tries to make a deduction about this person and finds it difficult to do because he's not from the time and he's obviously not human. So I had to cut all of that out. But that's what developed it. I think my reason for writing it originally was probably because of the TV show, not because of the stories I'd read before, but because I wanted to write a story. And, uh, and people ask me this all the, all the time, um, how close is my characterization of Holmes and Watson to Conan Doyle's? And the answer to that is somewhat close, because I'm not writing the Sherlock Holmes that Conan Doyle wrote. I'm writing Jeremy so when you read my stories, now think of it, because that's who he is. That's the Holmes I'm writing for. The Watsons are, you know, Burke and Hardwick. That, that's who I'm writing for. And like the TV show, I've denied Watson a wife, um, you know, um, and they still live together. And they, there's no separation and so on. So, yeah, it was the TV show. And then when I started writing them, I thought, you know what? I love those character, those actors' portrayals of the characters. So I'm writing an interpretation of Jeremy Brett's interpretation of Sherlock Holmes. So you've got three out so far, yep. many, many more in the pipeline. Do you want to yep. tell us a little bit of, about them beyond what you've already said? Sure. Scandalous Affair, as I say, was written, I actually wrote the story 20 years ago, and it was set in the town of Dartford, Kent, where I lived, and there's a lot of memorable places in that town that here in that book so um, I lived in a few of the areas as well so I had to the whole story is centered around where I lived and all the places that they mention in the book I either lived there or, or I went there so it was that was fun to do um, <clears throat> but the concept of the story was really um, it was really a, I tried to do as much sleuthing as I could in there because one of the things I liked about Jerry Brett when I saw the TV show was I don't know if you remember the episode the resident patient where he's asked to help somebody and and the, and the gentleman won't lies to him and he says well good day and then the next day he finds out he's killed himself and he goes up there and he does this very very silent examination of the room the, the policeman there watson's there and he goes and he's got his little tweezers and envelopes and he's pacing out and he's drawing chalk line that was like oh my god that's what i wanted for um, this so i have that in mind when I'm doing that. But the next story I wrote was called The Curse of Pharaoh. And of course, that was my love of the ancient Egypt, which had come off the Osiris series. And I really wanted to mix the two elements together. And also, I wanted to get Holmes out of London in an environment that perhaps wasn't entirely um, comfortable in. Uh, certainly Watson didn't really know that. But he traveled and he'd been in India and, 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 and Afghanistan and all these places. So he was fine with that traveling. But again, I was very mindful of those two actors being in that role. And of course, you know, when you read something in someone else's voice or you hear it in their voice when you're reading it, that's who, who I hear. But I was developing a different style in terms of how 
these two interact because it's a bit more personal. Their interactions are a little bit more personal than perhaps we've seen in other things. You see Watson getting a little bit agitated with Holmes and saying so. That's what I was going to mention, that one of the things I've enjoyed about your work is that Watson will tell Sherlock when he's out of line. <laughs> and a little bit more forcefully and more frequently than it ever happens in Doyle. But it, yeah. still, it still rings very true to those characters. You're just seeing these little bit more personal moments. And uh, because... You know, one of the, you know, we've this has come up repeatedly over this discussion because one of the touchstones of the Holmes character is that he is so arrogant and he can be so uh, unsympathetic and unfeeling toward what other people are going through. Uh, one of the things I enjoyed about Jeremy Brett's performance, and, and this really. You know, this comes through in some of the dialogue in the Doyle stories, but to be, but you get to see Jeremy Brett's expression mm. when a potential client comes and they're telling some horrific thing that's happened to them. You can see these flashes of glee <laughs> on <laughs> Jeremy Brett's face because he's just excited by the mystery, and it really doesn't occur to him that well, this person has suffered this this traumatic thing and uh well i think in 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 the first in our first sherlock holmes episode i think i said something about um that often to holmes the the people around him are they're, they're just kind of like insects that he's very curious to to look at you know he doesn't have yes. the normal human empathy <laughs> with people you know, it's like and conversely, it's the other way around, where he's initially interested by something, and then as they go on, you see him just getting bored, and yeah. he rolls his eyes, and then yeah. he starts playing with, like, fluff on his trousers. He's not interested at all. And I think I wanted to capture that. I wanted to capture certain things about Brett's performance, and one of them was the way in which he would flick his eyes, like when he wanted you to leave. He didn't even tell He just flicked his eyes, like... You know, um, and I think that there were certain expressions and, and the way he used his face to give that impression of boredom or glee or that no other actor, in my opinion, has really been able to master as well. Um, he could do so much more. That Somebody once said that Holmes, that Basil Rathbone was the Holmes of action and Jeremy Brett was the thinking Holmes. And I think um, I think that's a fair a fair analysis because what's this home spends a lot of time contemplating and putting things together, and then he'll just disappear off for a bit and come back, and he'll say, "Well, yeah, I've solved it," or whatever. Um, but you're right. I think that his way of smiling with his eyes you can't replicate that easily when you're writing. So you have to find a way of that. You know, Watson saying, "I could tell by the look." That, that that sort of glazed look of his, that he yeah. was, you know, yeah. sparkling eyes, you know, there was something there. <laughs> well, I mean, Conan Doyle came up with some of the best of all of the kind of, you know, quotable stuff. I mean, stuff like, um, uh, is there anything else you wish to draw my attention to? Only to the, you know, the dog in the nighttime. Well, what? <laughs> the dog in the nighttime did nothing. That's the curious incident, you know, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. Because it spawned an entire show and, and 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 books and everything just that yeah. one thing 
And uh, there's just got to be like the cleverness of that to say a hundred and well a hundred years on because 2023 will be the final end of the last story because it was 1923 I think but over a hundred years on and people are using quotes probably like they don't even know where they're hearing some of these things from like yeah. nobody says elementary you know but yet we know what it means <laughs> uh, and uh, there are stuff like that that I think that has made in that is still contemporary today um that I think it's like if you think about it there are certain things that some characters never say they just get hooked into this whole um and I liked I liked that I like the I like the high idea that Watson and Holmes had a f relationship that transcended uh, um the friendship of just two people that might work together these people live together they lived and breathed stuff they and oh and can we just say the amount of times that Sherlock Holmes deliberately puts Watson in mortal peril <laughs> and then says oh my dear fellow I, I you know I, I never imagined for a second and you think you liar yeah. <laughs> you lie you knew exactly what you were doing <laughs> yeah do you have any, any long-term goals in mind for the stories and the characters or are you just kind of you know, making it up as you go along, or do you, do you have any sort of bigger sense across the uh, multiple books that you've got planned over the next year and or so? I have two themes running right now. I'm actually, and you obviously have worked on two of these uh, stories, I get to work on, on all the others, but um, I'm adding my own characters into the stories subtly. Um, I The first book had Inspector Hargreaves, he's mine. The second book, um, there's a gentleman in there called Colonel Barker, he's mine. You know, there are there are characters that seem like they might not relate. Um, Lady Harmony, who I um, have added into the Langstaff series, which I'm very happy with. I'm going to use these characters again, and and I'm going to try and sort of as the, as the stories weave on through the different. They're all going to be independent stories and not going to be connected. I don't want to. Oh God read book five before you read book seven and all that nonsense. I don't want to do that. I want people to be able to pick them in any order and read them and go, oh, um, Superintendent Peterson. I'm just sort of seeding my own people in this so that later on I can use them again in another way. But the other goal, of course, is, you know, I'm writing 10 of these Watson Chronicles. That's That's been my set number of books to be completed at the end of 2022. Um, what I do beyond that, I don't know, but that's where I'm going. And um, once I have all ten of them out there, and they're, you know, I'm I'm going to tell you that they're, they're they're very successful. They're doing very very well, and um, um, much better than any of my other stuff ever did. <laughs> well, these books are doing organically. The sales have gone through the roof, and um, you can because I published exclusively on Kindle for the for the uh, eBooks. Uh, it's in the unlimited Kindle Unlimited program, so mm. people can free and so on. But I get to see how many pages are being read. And, uh, you know, like last month, I had 67,000 page reads, <laughs> just right. three books, which Langsdale came out at the uh, middle of May, and that had 23,000 by the end. So I, I know that these are going to be successful, and I think that what I would like to do is have enough of them behind me to be maybe even you know, through my peers who have all got connections and so on to find some way of perhaps 
marketing it as maybe a, a TV series or maybe something that I can think these characters could be used for. Because I think the success of Sherlock Holmes isn't just in its writing. It isn't just in, in the fact that there are a number of people out there writing these stuff. People want this stuff. I mean, just organically with no effort whatsoever, my stuff is selling and I'm getting very good reviews from it. Imagine the people are crying out for this stuff. The Another Home thing was like number one on, on Netflix watched for like a week because people want this stuff. So my aim, long-term goal, is to look at this series and see whether or not I can it somewhere that somebody might want to take it and maybe even make a... And I'll have enough of them that they can do 10 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... It's the perfect plan. Yes, I, I very much hope that happens. Well, this has been great. Thank you so much for chatting with us about uh, this fabulous character that we all love so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me to do it. I loved, and it's great to see you. It was a great time. That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next time for more geeky fun. Until then, check out our website, generationsgeek.com, for blog posts or to stream any of our episodes. You can also visit us on Ko-Fi, where I'm posting geeky book reviews from my archives. They're free to read, but you can always consider dropping something in the tip jar. Remember to subscribe to the show and give us fabulous reviews. If we're not on your favorite podcasting app, let us know and we'll add it to our feed. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and even Facebook. Thanks for listening. And come back come next Come back time. next time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>